Well, welcome. Uh, it is going to be so nice next week to actually have people in the room. That will be wonderful, and we are looking forward to that. And so we're, I'm just very thankful. On a personal level, I just want to say that um, I've been off for the last couple of weeks, and I have just really sensed um, God's hand in my life, and I know that people have been praying for me. And so I just want to say to those of you who have been praying for me, thank you. Uh, what an incredible blessing to feel God's, uh, to feel prayers being answered. And so uh, thank you for that. We had a great time with our family, but we are really glad to be back. And it just is a, it's a reminder, submit those prayer requests because prayer is powerful and we love praying for you. So this morning, um, I also am thinking just about how thankful I am for, uh, for Craig and for Rick and, and the way that the Lord spoke through them over the last couple of weeks. What, a, what an incredible blessing it was to tune in from wherever we were and to be able to watch the service and participate. That's been, that's been awesome. I'm very thankful for that. So this morning, if you have your Bibles, open up to Matthew chapter 15, verse 21. We are going to continue through the book of Matthew and we are going to be considering faith and compassion. And uh, this, this story, uh, the, the entire passage, really emphasizes God's love for us, his compassion for people. And that's one of the things I love about the Old Testament. One of the things I love about the New Testament is as we read the way God interacted with people, it's like we see who God is. And it is so encouraging to know that God never changes. Jesus never changes. The way that he loved people in the Old Testament, the way that he loves people in the New Testament, the way that Jesus loved people when he was here on earth is the same way that he loves you and I today. So encouraging. And uh, you've often heard uh, this statement, and it goes like this. It says, um, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Have you ever thought about that? That's powerful. As believers, we should be um, known as people who love. Now, I, I will say this. As I think about that statement, I'm not sure that that statement is 100% true. Nobody cares how much you know until they know how much you care. And I just think about a, me a medical analogy. Have you ever been to um, a doctor and and some doctors have a terrible bedside manner. And it's like, if I got a choice between a doctor who every time he operates on somebody, it's successful, he's an expert, he knows what he's doing, and has a terrible bedside manner. I will pick that over a really nice guy who has no idea what he's doing. Um, so does, does truth, does how much people know, does it matter? And the answer is yes, but as Christians, we don't choose between um, knowing and not caring or caring and not knowing. We don't choose those options. We, chose, we choose the option of knowing Jesus, knowing what he says, knowing the truth, living the truth, and then genuinely loving people. I think about this passage that's on the screen. It's John 13, 34. And Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you, also are, you also are to love one another. And then he goes on and he just says that people are going to know we're Christians by our love. And when Jesus, when you look at Jesus' whole life, and he, and he says this, he says that to the disciples in John 13 as he's considering going to the cross. So his whole life of ministry, he's shown them to love people. He's demonstrated that in the Last Supper. He has taught them that greater love has no one than this, but that he laid down his life for his friend. And Jesus is about to lay down his life. And so he leaves with that powerful message of love. Now, as we think about the compassion of Jesus, that, you know, in this passage, compassion is emphasized. Not just like this intellectual love, but an emotional, intense feeling of love that results in actions. And, and we see love for the Gentiles. We can see love for the Gentiles in this passage. 
We're going to see Jesus' love for his disciples who were supposed to be learning things. And, and our, our poor disciples, we, we look at them and go, oh, my goodness, how'd you, how'd you mess this up? We're going to see some of that. And it just is nice when I see the disciples messing things up and Jesus still loving and training them, it's encouraging because that tells me that that's how Jesus will be with me. And we see faith. Um, we're going to see faith in this passage, the faith of a Canaanite woman who you wouldn't expect her to have that kind of faith. And a lack of faith in the disciples as it comes to the feeding of the 4,000. You know, we think about the powerful element of faith. God's love is part of what allows us to trust him. We trust God because he's real, but we also trust him because we know he loves us. You know, Hebrews eleven six says, it says that uh, without faith it is impossible to please God. And then it goes on and it says, and whoever comes to God must know that he is, must believe that he is, and that he rewards those who seek him. Man, what a powerful combination of faith and love. Let's jump into this passage and let's consider this. We're going to see three things uh, today. We're going to look at the Canaanite woman. That's what we'll see in verse 21 to 28. And, and this is a test of compassion and an example of faith. We're going to see Jesus healing crowds of Gentiles. He's going to demonstrate God's love for the whole world. And then we're going to see the feeding of the 4,000. And that's just evidence of God's compassion and his sovereign power and how that can lead us to trust Jesus. Okay, so if you have your Bibles, Matthew 15, 21, let's jump into our first point. The Canaanite woman, a test of compassion and an example of faith. Let's, let's read this passage and then we'll go back and we're going to actually look at the details. Verse 21, and Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And let me just show you where that is. So Jesus has been hanging out around the Sea of Galilee where he grew up and he decides that he is going to go to a Gentile area, this area of Tyre and Sidon. And you'll remember that earlier in chapter 11, um, Jesus has been contrasting the wicked cities of Tyre and Sidon and Sodom and Gomorrah, but these are two of the cities that he mentions, and, and he denounces the Jewish cities of Chorazin and, and Bethsaida, and he just says, you know, these Gentile cities that you look down on, these ones that are far off, if the miracles done in your midst were done there, they would have repented. So the Jews are just feeling so much better than these cities. And one of the things that I notice is that Jesus, so it would take 24 hours to walk to that area if you could walk three miles an hour. So it probably took Jesus longer because they got to stop and eat and do different things. But Jesus is going to walk all the way to this Gentile area. He doesn't wait for the Gentiles to come to him. He goes to them. And that's kind of the setting. Jesus goes to this Gentile area. And this is where we meet this Canaanite woman. Look at verse 22. And it says, and behold, and that word behold, that's like this surprising thing. It's to get the attention. It's to focus the attention on this Gentile woman. So we know something big's about to happen because it says behold. Matthew is calling this out. Now, one of the things I love about Matthew is Matthew is a Jewish guy, and he grew up in Israel, but he was a tax collector. He was the one that was rejected, that was kind of outside the circle. And so Matthew has this special place in his heart for the people that, that, that religious people might judge because that was Matthew. And so Matthew just says, behold, because he's bringing attention to this Canaanite woman. And let's, let's look at what happens. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out, and she was crying. And she says to Jesus this amazing thing. So she's crying Whatever's going on here is intense. We're about to find out what that is. And she says, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. And then she says here, my daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Here we see this Canaanite woman. Jesus shows up to town, and surprisingly, she knows who Jesus is. And she says, Lord, she cries out, have mercy on me, 
oh, Lord. So, so she's recognizing who Jesus is, and she goes on, and she clarifies that even more, and she says, son of David. She knows that he is the Messiah, the son of David, sent to the, to the Israel, sent to Israel. And she's crying out, and she's saying, have mercy on me. She knows that she needs God's help. So this woman, um, she, she is having a severe problem. It says her daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. You know, this is amazing. When you think about the Canaanites and kind of the attitude that Jews would have toward Canaanites and Gentiles, like they've grown up, they read the story of Joshua where God told Israel to go in and wipe out the Canaanites because they were hard-hearted and they, were, they rejected God. And we're going to see this, kind of that perspective. The Jews missed the point of Old Testament passages. The point of the Old Testament passages and even Joshua going in and wiping out Canaanites was never that God loved the Jews and didn't love non-Jews. That was not the message. The message was a sustained, hard-hearted rebellion against God eventually results in judgment. Those Canaanites had been wicked, and the Bible tells us that they were wicked for 400 years, and God just allowed generation after generation to go by for them to repent, for them to stop their hard-hearted sin. And instead of Israel looking and go, wow, look how gracious God is, look how forgiving God is, but eventually people face judgment. Instead, they were hard-hearted, they thought God loved them because they were Jews and he hated the Canaanites because they weren't Jews. They missed the point. And so she sees and she recognizes who Jesus is. Now there's this huge contrast. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, the ones who should have seen who Jesus was, didn't. And this Canaanite woman from the area of Tyre and Sidon recognizes Jesus. And one of the things that we see here is that she's crying out, have mercy on me. She is desperate. And she has this serious, unresolved problem. Now think about this. She is the mother of a daughter who is possessed by a demon. Now we've read through the New Testament, and if you read, you know that the, the devastation, the destruction that Satan has in a person's life and we think about the physical ailments, people who couldn't talk, people who are lame. We think about the men that we've met in the past who are screaming and this demon is just harming them and they're cutting themselves with rocks and, and just people that destroy themselves because they're demon-possessed and how demons want to hurt and to kill and to harm and how they're just out of control like some people we've met are out of control that nobody can control them and it's destructive and it's heartbreaking. And here this mom who loves her daughter, it has a serious problem. Her daughter is possessed by a demon, and she's asking for help. Now look at verse 23, and uh, Jesus does the unexpected here. So they're walking. This lady is following them. She is crying out, and it says that Jesus did not answer her a word. So he ignores her. And what we find out is that this is a test. It is a test for his disciples, and it is a test for this woman. And Jesus, I'm sure, knows how it's going to turn out, that the disciples will fail the test, and the woman is going to pass with flying colors. But Jesus is just quiet. He lets this situation develop, and, and he's going to see how will the disciples respond to this mom, this person, this woman made in God's image who's heartbroken because she loves her kid. You know, one of the things we need to remember about the disciples is that Jesus already sent them out to heal, to cast out demons. And so, and they were there, like his disciples were there for the Sermon on the Mount, where, where Jesus was preaching on love and mercy, not being judgmental toward other people, treating other people the way you would want to be treated, and marks of true salvation. So Jesus taught them that. He sent them out to preach that message, to cast out demons. They have seen how Jesus has responded to Gentiles. Remember the Roman centurion? When he comes and says, Jesus, please heal my servant. And Jesus says, this man has faith like I've not seen in Israel. 
And then they've seen Jesus heal Peter's mother-in-law and just all the people who came. They, they, they saw those two men possessed by demons, harming themselves, crying out, just breaking chains. Nobody could control them. They were devastating this town. And that was a Gentile area that Jesus walks in and he cast the demon out of those men. And by the way, those two men said, Jesus, please, can we follow you? Can we go with you? And Jesus said, no, go back to your town and tell people how good I've been to you. And then that whole town came out and said, hey, Jesus, will you leave? And what we're going to find out is in our story, Jesus is going to go back to that town that asked him to leave. So his disciples have already seen this. They've, they've had a chance to observe it. And so the question is, with all this teaching, instruction, and, and example, how will the disciples respond? Um, well, can I just go right out there and say the disciples fail the test? <laughs> they do not respond correctly. And here's where we actually see some prayer. Now think about this. Every conversation with Jesus is a prayer. And so his disciples are about to pray to Jesus. And let's look what they do. Matthew 15, 23. And his disciples came and they begged him. So you have this woman crying out for help. And now you got these disciples that show up and they are begging him. And what are they begging him? Uh, this poor mom. She's heartbroken. She cares about her daughter. Please heal her daughter. Is that wait? Oh, wait. Let's read this. And his disciples came and they begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. They're just like, Jesus, this woman is driving us nuts. Can you send her away? They're irritated. They want her to go away. They are uncompassionate. They are hard-hearted. They are blind to the desperation of a mother's heart for her daughter. And they pray earnestly for Jesus to reject this woman. That's their prayer. And uh, Jesus does answer their prayer, but he answers it with no. And I was thinking about that. Now, we're going to see that Jesus is going to now give this woman an opportunity to be tested. The disciples just failed the test. By the way, it reminds me of James chapter 4, verse 3, where it says, You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. These disciples were not motivated by God's will at this point. They were not driven by love or lofty, godly emotions. They were selfish. Their passions were, get this lady away from me. She's bothering me. Now, they were looking down on everybody around them. And by the way, those are not the prayers that Jesus answers. You know, I think about us. You know, this is a test that Jesus gave the disciples. And one of the things that we need to consider is every circumstance, every situation we face is not an accident. God puts us in places. He has put us in our culture, in our time. And for every believer, it is a test. And I want you to just think about your life. The things that you're going through, the trials, the struggles, our current circumstances, the political divisiveness. It's a test. And I just want to ask you, how are you doing? Are you passing the test the way God would have us pass the test? Or like the disciples, are we failing that test? And, and one of those questions is, when you see people doing things on the other end of the political spectrum, or when you p see people doing terrible, horrible things, do you see them and are you compassionate? Are you soft-hearted? Do you recognize them as needing the Lord? When you feel like people are against you, are you against them? See, that's one of the things that happens in our culture is the very people God has called us to love in many cases are against us. Do we allow people who are against us to control whether or not we are against them? So there's a lot of application here. And when we see people functioning the way they shouldn't feel and hurting and in distress, we should be praying that they would come to know the Lord. We should be working toward that. So let's look how Jesus responds now to this Canaanite woman. And um, 
I'm sure that as he begins to respond, his disciples are kind of happy with his response. Look at this. Matthew 15, 24. Now, now she's already hinted that maybe she understands some of this because she recognizes Jesus as the son of David, the king sent to rule on David's throne in Israel. Jesus is there for Israel. This is what he says. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. By the way, the lost sheep, because Israel was certainly lost. So Jesus is setting his disciples up. Jesus is compassionate. And yes, he did come to the Jews first. But, you know, it's interesting when you think about God's mission to the Jews. The Jews are first. They are God's chosen people. He did choose them, but they were to be a blessing to the world. And think about how this is all through Scripture. Um, The Jew first, a lot of times we might struggle with that. But if you look at Romans 16, when when Paul talks about the gospel, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first, but also to the the Greek. That's that's a a Gentile. And Romans 2.9, let's not forget that. Jesus says salvation's for the Jew first and also to the Greek. But then he goes on in chapter 2 and he says there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. For the Jew first. And also for the Greek. See, that's the problem with the Jews. They thought the gospel, salvation is for Jews and judgment is for Gentiles. And God says, no, you've missed the point. Salvation is for Jews and Gentiles and judgment is for Jews and Gentiles. Salvation's offered to everybody. God loves everybody. He's welcoming everybody. But for every person, Jew or Gentile, who hardens their heart against God, there will eventually be judgment. That was Jesus' point when he contrasted the Jewish cities and the Gentile cities. And then look at verse 25. This woman's going to shine. Jesus is asking her questions. He's pushing back because she's about to shine. Look at this. But she came and she knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. She is crying out in desperation. She knows Jesus is the only one who can help. She is persistent. And we think about Psalm 102.17. Just the things we learn about prayer from this. It says that God regards the prayer of the destitute. He does not despise their prayer. Jesus is allowing this woman to shine. And then he says, look at verse 26. Jesus is going to push. Will she stay persistent? Will she keep begging for help? And he answered and he says, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And she said, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Jesus is saying, Jesus, you have come. Your primary ministry right now is to the Jews. But it's not just for the Jews. It's also for us. And look, when you consider that she demonstrates persistence and confidence in God's mercy, she shows that she has a better understanding of God's mission in the world through the nation of Israel than the Israelites themselves understood. She's not insulted when Jesus says, no, it's for the children, not the dog. She's not insulted. She's humble. She asks without an attitude of entitlement. And this woman, man, she displays confidence in the compassion and mercy and grace of God. And here, Jesus is going to respond to her with love and compassion. He is going to highlight her in a way. Like, when did Jesus ever say to any of his disciples what he's about to say to this woman? Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Jesus in his ministry has been emphasizing the greatness of faith, the importance of faith, the priority of faith. He's had to tell his disciples, even if you had tiny faith, you could move a mountain. 
And yet we see this centurion, this Roman centurion soldier, and now this Canaanite woman. They're the people that Jesus looks at and says, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. How incredible. Jesus loves her. He gives her an opportunity to shine. And this Gentile from a Gentile city demonstrates an understanding of God's purpose and plan that exceeds the disciples, the Pharisees, and many of the Jews who had grown up with the Old Testament missing its entire point. You know, I just want to ask you, are you moved The disciples should have been moved with the compassion of God. They should have seen the kind of compassion that God had for people, and they should have been moved by it. And I want to ask you, do you have God's heart for people? As you look around in our politically divisive situation, do you love the very very people that are against us? I think about the Apostle Paul when he's talking and pleading with people to be saved. In 2 Corinthians 5.20, he says, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. He's reminding us that we represent Christ. And then he says, as though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Paul is just saying God's love for people wells up in my heart and my emotions pour out how God feels about people. That's what did not happen to the disciples now we're going to go on and we're going to actually see some more. We're going to see that, that Jesus, the same way he blessed Israel, he goes into Jewish eras, areas and pours out his blessing on the Gentiles. He is going to heal tons of Gentiles in a moment. And this is a demonstration of God's love for the entire world. God loves Christians, but God loves the world. He came and died for everybody. And and this invitation is universal. It is to the world to come and to see Jesus. Now, let's just notice a few things here. Jesus is going to be traveling all the way back. It says, Jesus went on from there. And let's just look at a map here. It says that he went on from there. So he's been up in that Tyre and Sidon area. And it says that Jesus went on from there and he walked beside the Sea of Galilee. So this is another like 26-hour walk. If you were to walk nonstop, three miles an hour, never taking a break, that's how long it would take you to walk that. So this has taken Jesus some days to walk. And so he's, he's going to travel all the way through Israel and he's going to go back into a Gentile area. And you'll notice it says that he walks along the, the side of the Sea of Galilee. And then it tells us in Mark, which is the other passage that addresses this, uh, it tells us that Jesus went down into the Decapolis, which is like a, this area of about 10 cities. And so that's how we know it's down on that lower corner of the Sea of Galilee. because, And that's the place, by the way, where Jesus met those two demon-possessed men that he cast the demon out, and he sent them back. The town's like, Jesus, can you leave? These two men are saying, Jesus, can we go with you? And Jesus says, no, go back to that town and explain to them the great things God has done for you. And Jesus is coming back. I wonder if, if the people in that city looked at these men and just thought, oh my goodness, we told Jesus to leave, are we crazy? You guys were going nuts. You were threatening people. You were breaking chains. You were doing all these things. And the testimony of these two men to their town. And I wonder if the next time Jesus came, the whole town's coming out, not saying, hey, leave. They're, they're saying, Jesus, we missed out on our chance. And I wonder... Is that the kind of testimony that we have toward the unbelievers in our life that that as we talk about the great things that God has done for us, that it creates this huge desire and hunger and the people around us see Jesus through our eyes and they say, well, what Jesus did for you, I want Jesus to do that for me. Or do we wander around in our culture 
that can be so hostile to Christianity? And do we keep it to ourselves? Do we edit the gospel? Do we only say the things that people might like and hold back those critical, important things? Or do we just lay it all out there and say, I love Jesus. This is what he's done for me. Are we bold? Do we fear God or do we fear men? Because this whole town said, Jesus, can you head on out of here? You know, we got, we've got a culture. We've got educational systems, classrooms that are saying, hey, Jesus, head on out of here. But are we as believers the ones who walk into our workplace? Do we walk into our classrooms? Do we go into our neighborhoods? Do we go to our friends and say, no, let me tell you what Jesus has done for me? Well, it says that Jesus goes through this area, and, it, and then it says here, it says, he walked by the Sea of Galilee in verse 29, and he went up on the mountain and sat down. Jesus is climbing mountains. He's walking for days to get to people who need them. He's not waiting for them to come to him. He is going to them. And then look what it says. It says, and great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. You know, this crowd, they see Jesus heal these two demons, and they say, can you leave? Well, the next time around, they're bringing everyone they know with a problem, and they're laying them at Jesus' feet, and he healed them so that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, the blind seeing. And then the way this ends is awesome. And they glorified the God of Israel. Okay, these are Gentiles, and they're saying, no, Israel's God is the great God. They're glorifying the God of Israel. They, they, they're not erasing what God's plan is, but they're seeing the God of Israel is the real God. And I'll just tell you, they didn't figure that out just because Jesus quietly healed people. They learned. They saw. You know, Jesus, these works that Jesus is doing, they prove that he's the Messiah. You remember John the Baptist? You know, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. But I want you to know something. These things were a truthful verification of who Jesus was. It was not just empty love. It was love from the God of the universe. And his deeds proved that he not only loved, he did know. Um, these things, remember John the Baptist's disciples come and say, hey, Jesus, things aren't working out the way we thought they would. Um, is it really you or should we wait for someone else? And Jesus says, go back and tell them that the lame walk and the blind see. The things Jesus did proved who he was. He did love, but he also knew, and he was the truth. It was not just pleasant feelings. It was an accurate expression of the God of the universe, the true God who genuinely loves us. You know, there's another phrase that I'm sure you've heard. I'll put it up on the screen. It says, preach the gospel always. If necessary, use words. You ever heard that? Um, hey, that's a great point. I understand the point of that. That's good. That's saying, don't let your life contradict your message. Don't say Jesus loves you and then respond to people with hatred. But I just want to tell you something. Preach the gospel always, and if necessary, use words. Words are always necessary. You can never preach the gospel with only your life and without your words. They always have to go together. That is such a cop-out for many Christians to, to just get rid of persecution, to avoid actually speaking about God. And, and they just they go to restaurants and leave big tips and think they're evangelizing. They go to work and they're just nice to everybody. Never a word to put that into context. They just go mow their neighbor's lawns and do nice things for their neighbors. Never 
bringing up the name of Jesus. And I just want to tell you, words are always necessary. Now, that doesn't mean every time you do something, you have to be this constant expression of words. But if you never say any words, your actions will have no context. Jesus didn't, in an intellectual vacuum, walk up and heal people and then walk away. And nobody knew who he was. Nobody knew who he stood for. Jesus preached and he healed. And for us as Christians, we do need to, in fact, let's think about this. We need to let our light, uh, Matthew 5, 16, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We do good works. And when people see the lives that we live, it gives glory to God, but only if we explain that we're Christians, and if we explain what a Christian is, and if we explain God's love for people, and only when words go along with it does it actually bring glory to God. Preach the gospel always, if necessary, use words. Look at Romans 10, 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How will they then call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? It doesn't say how will they hear without somebody doing good things. It says, how will they hear without someone preaching? So, yes, we should preach the gospel always with our life. And we should always allow our words to go along with that. Let's look at our third section here, the feeding of the 4,000. Now, this is evidence of God's compassion and sovereign power that should result in building faith. Now, I just want to do a contrast here. Two two, uh, sections ago, a couple chapters ago, Craig preached on the feeding of the 5,000. It's kind of crazy. There are some people who think, oh, yeah, no, this is the same event. (laughs) Can I just tell you it's not the same event? Uh, The feeding of the 5,000 had the Jews as its audience. That's who Jesus was ministering to, preaching to, caring for, healing, and feeding. But Jesus doesn't just care about the Jews. He cares about the Gentiles. And so this is a second trip, and this is into the Gentile areas. And Jesus pours out the same love, the same compassion, the same miracles for the Gentiles. Now, if you were to contrast the feeding of the 4,000 and the 5,000, The feeding of the 5,000 is in all four Gospels. The feeding of the 2,000 is only in Matthew and Luke, or Mark. Um, In in the feeding of the 5,000, people are with Jesus all day. That's why he feeds them. But when you read this story, these people were with Jesus for three days. It's like the the hunger, the desire to to be around Jesus was more intense with the Gentiles. Jesus says to uh, the Jews at one point, the only reason you're here is because I fed you and you came out to, see, to get some food. You don't really care about me. All you care about is your food. Jesus rested before he fed the 5,000. In our par- passage, Jesus has spent three days healing people. You just see his love pouring out on the Gentiles. He's working for three days. He's healing people. He's caring for people. For three days, and then he feeds them. Uh, I'll tell you what's the same. Jesus feels compassion for the Jews, and he feels compassion for the Gentiles. Feeding of the 5,000, there's five loaves and two fish. In the feeding of the 4,000, there's seven loaves and a few fish. So there's actually more resources here. Uh, There were 5,000 men and women and children with the Jewish Um, Event And there are 4,000 men plus women and children with the Gentiles. In both, Jesus multiplies the food. For the Jews, they sat on grass. There's some months have passed, and here they're going to sit on the ground. 
in both, the disciples had no idea how they were going to meet this need. And in both, Jesus feeds everybody. Everybody's satisfied, and there's lots left over. For the feeding of the 5,000, there's 12 baskets, one basket for each disciple. And here there's 12, or there's seven baskets, but it's actually a different kind of basket. It's a bigger basket. So let's read this story and make a few observations. Then Jesus called his disciples. This is verse 32. Jesus called his disciples and he said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have, had, and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. See, these Gentiles, they were committed. They were passionate. They wanted the ministry of Jesus, and they were hanging on his every word, and they were there. And Jesus cares about them. They've been with me for three days, and I am not going to send them on lest they faint. You know, Jesus cares about their physical needs. And I want to tell you something. Jesus cares about your physical needs. Now, Jesus is always going to prioritize. God is always going to prioritize the spiritual over the physical. It's one of the huge problems that we have with churches and in our culture. People want to take God out. They want to take eternity out. And they just want to deal with, like, temporal things. You know, what good is it to feed somebody and then they die and they spend forever separated from God? Sometimes God uses physical needs, physical difficulties, physical trials to give people the greatest possible blessing. You know, I think about COVID-19. Somebody gets COVID and they're afraid that they're going to die and maybe they do die. What an earthly tragedy. If, we, if only we could just push a button and that would be gone. But you want to know what is far more tragic than getting COVID-19 and dying is to go through your life, to have a good, pleasant life, to have a full life, and die as an old person who does not know the Lord. That is far more tragic. And if a person gets COVID-19 and they realize, my end is coming, and it gives them a sense of urgency, and they're concerned about their eternal destiny, the conviction of the Holy Spirit in their life, and maybe believing friends come alongside them and say, I've, I've known them for years, but I've never shared the gospel with them, and their days may be numbered. And maybe the people that love them and care about them share the gospel and let them know eternity is at stake, eternity with God or eternity separated from God. And so sometimes temporal things while they're important, are not the most important thing. But I want you to know that while they're not the most important thing, God cares about you temporarily. He cares about your needs, cares about your emotions. He cares about the things going on in your life that concern you. God cares about that the same way that he cared about this crowd. Look at verse 33. And the disciples said to him, Where are we to get enough bread? in such a desolate place <laughs> to feed so great a crowd. I mean, hey, guys, uh, the disciples failed at the beginning of the passage, and they're about to fail again. <laughs> I mean, you, like, you just, one of the reasons people think that this is the same story is that people are just going, how could, how could you, like, a couple months later be in the same situation and respond the same way? Like, nobody's that thick-headed. And I just want you to know, we got to be so careful how judgmental we can be toward the disciples. And they have a culture that blinded them. They grew up thinking a certain way. They were people just like you and me. I want to ask you a question. Has God ever cared for you or met your needs in your life? Uh, let's just pick an example. Have you ever lost a job and been concerned? Man, what am I going to do? Maybe you graduated from college, you didn't know where you were going to work, you were stressed out, or maybe you had a job and a family and your company closed or something happened and you lost your job and you're just going, man, I see nothing on the horizon. I'm afraid my money's going to run out. What's going to happen to me? And, and God, you pray, people pray for you, and God provides. 
and you get work and you're able to pay your bills and you don't lose your house and you're not on the street or maybe you even do lose your house and you are on the street and you're living with friends, but God puts your life back together. I got a question for you. The next time you lose your job, do you say, oh, it's cool, no problem, I'm relaxed because last time I lost my job, God took care of me. You ever had a really difficult uh, physical illness and you were worried about the outcome and you prayed about it and God got you through it and you were okay and now you're facing it again? Well, the next time do you face it, do you go, oh, no big deal, God took care of this in the past, I'm good now. See, the thing is, is that impossible situations feel impossible every time we face them. They shouldn't. We should be able to make those connections, but it's hard, and that's exactly where the disciples are. They're still, like, they live in a world where seven fish and, or seven pieces of bread and a few fish don't feed thousands of people. That's the world they live in. And so they just, they, they do. They say, uh, where, where are we going to get enough food in this desolate place? And Jesus said to them, verse 34, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven Baskets full of broken pieces left over. And those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And after the sending the crowds away, he got into a boat and went to the region of Magadan. You know, um, they had more resources this time than before. But, you know, their resources were not enough. They had two extra fish. Two extra fish is still incredibly insignificant. I just want you to know, I don't care what your resources are, they are not significant enough to meet the needs of your life. I don't care how rich you are, you can get a fatal disease. Uh, Tragedies can happen in your family. There are issues and problems in life that money cannot solve. It doesn't matter how much money you have, you have your confidence in your money, that money can evaporate in a moment. None of us ever have the resources to meet our needs. That's why Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount encourages us, pray, Lord, give us this day our daily bread. Everything we have comes from God. Even when we give, we're giving from things that God has given to us. And Jesus here thanks God. That is a recognition that everything we have comes from God. And then God works and and Jesus supplies these needs. You know, I want to just read a verse. It's um, Romans chapter 8, verse 32. And I want you to think about this. Jesus has um, solved your most significant need, your spiritual need. God has given you the greatest thing he could ever give. Look at Romans eight thirty-two. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things. You know, I don't know what you're struggling with today. I don't know what is a challenge to you, but I just want you to know that God may be using those challenges and difficulties to point you to him for your eternal needs, for your relationship with God himself. If you're already a child of God, it is just a reminder that everything we have and everything that we need comes from a God who loves us. And if God would give Jesus for you, there's nothing he won't give you. We're going to take a moment now. We're going to think about the death of Christ and what that accomplishes for us. You know, way in the Old Testament, God promised that he would send Jesus to die for us. Um, Isaiah 53 says that Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. He was trust, He was crushed for our iniquity. When Jesus went to the cross, God took our sin and placed it on Jesus, and Jesus is our sacrifice, the sacrifice that was sufficient 
that was complete. There is nothing left for us to do. Jesus didn't die so we could be good enough to please God. Jesus died and he was good enough to please God. And that's given to us for free. It's given to us when we repent, when we return to Jesus. And in the same way that woman was crying out and saying, God, I need help. I need help with something that I cannot do for myself. When we come to God and we say, I, I need forgiveness, and, and I cannot provide that for myself, I need what Jesus did, the Bible says that God pours that out into us and that we become children of God. And that's what Jesus celebrated and instructed us to celebrate. Look at 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three. For I received from the Lord that what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And I'm going to take bread out of this cup. It's on the very top of this thing here. I'm going to take this bread. I'm going to take this bread. And it says he took bread. And when he had given thanks... And yes, God provides the food. He provides everything that we have and need. But ultimately, he's provided us Jesus. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. When we take this bread and when we eat it, we remember that Jesus died for us. In the same way, he took the cup after supper saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Jesus is coming back, and he died for us, and this is a reminder of that. I want to just say, if, if you are watching today and you don't have that personal relationship with Christ, I would encourage you, reach out to a Christian in your life and tell them that you, that you want to know the Lord. Email our church. Contact somebody from here. We'll help you. We'll walk alongside you. But most importantly, salvation is something that happens between you and God. If you recognize that you need Jesus, call out to him, repent, Turn from your sins. Ask Jesus to forgive you. Trust what he's done. And then find a church family that you can be a part of and grow in your relationship with the Lord. Let me pray for us. God, thank you so much for your kindness, for all that you have done for us in providing salvation. Lord, as we struggle with things, as we struggle with things in this life, God, thank you that you have demonstrated that you care about us and we can trust you. Lord, if there's anybody hearing today that doesn't know you, God, I ask that you would convict their heart, that you would draw them to yourself. And Lord, that you would surround them with other believers that will love them, that will encourage them, that will teach them how to live the Christian life. Lord, thank you for all that you've done for us in your name. Amen.